0: Welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Oranges in Southern California are synonymous. This is so widespread that the final image at California Adventures soaring Over California are the orchards in Orange County. But it wasn't always that way. The citrus industry in Southern California is the direct result of the railroad octopus in California. In this podcast, we sit down with Benjamin Jenkins, whose new book, The Octopus Garden, uncovers the connection between the iron horse and the orchards dating all the way back to the 19th century. We hope you enjoy. All right, well, welcome to, to uh, Roundhouse House Crosstalk, podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Um, today, I'm joined by Benjamin Jenkins, uh, who wrote a book. When did this come out? Or it is is coming he- out?
1: It is coming out, yeah. It'll be out on July 10th, so a couple weeks away.
0: Awesome. Uh, It's called The Octopus's Garden, Railroad's Citrus Agriculture in the Emergence of Southern California. Uh, Thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me,
1: Jake. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk about this. I wouldn't have been able to write this book without amazing support from the staff and from the archives at the California State Railroad Museum. So shout out to you guys for making this kind of uh, research possible.
0: Well, just jumping right into the questions here. So there's been a lot of academic study of the railroad industry in California uh, and in the citrus industry in California. Um, So what prompted you to study them sort of in conjunction with each other?
1: This really started out as kind of a personal project for me, very much a passion project. Growing up in Southern California, we are surrounded by the remnants of our history, whether that's in the form of the missions, the railroads that the santa fe still uses to crisscross through my hometown laverne uh, or the packing houses that were used by the citrus industry to prepare fruit i actually grew up in laverne which is the town where i have a university appointment now and one of the packing houses in that building has it's right in the railroad tracks and it has this amazing mural of what the citrus industry looked like of workers out in the fields uh, workers in packing houses sorting oranges and people like to refer to this town, Laverne, as the heart of the Orange Empire. And so many towns across Southern California have packing houses like this that recall sort of the intersection of citrus and railroads and how they were huge in community development, uh, whether that's in small cities like Laverne, slightly larger ones like Pomona or Riverside, or even Los Angeles, which some people have referred to as the Big Orange itself. Uh, We have recreational sites like the uh, Orange Empire Railway Museum out in Paris, California. We have the Riverside's California Citrus State Historic Park. So we're surrounded by these landmarks to really aspects of our history that don't exist any longer, but that have ensconced themselves in our public memory. So this idea that these two notions, citrus and railroads, are kind of combined in public consciousness really is what led me to start this research project to come up with this idea of what I call the octopus's garden. Octopus uh, being sort of a nickname that Californians had for the railroad, the the big railroad, the Southern Pacific back in the 19th century. Um, In this case, the octopus is sort of a benevolent entity tending to the gardens, growing the fruits that led to California's commercial prosperity. Uh, And I'd also, be remiss if I did not take this chance to tip my hat to Ringo Starr, who wrote, the Beatle, who wrote that song "Octopus's Garden." I'd like to thank him for writing
0: that uh, perfect song title that I was able to poach for this book. Perfect. My guess is, is, and I don't know, I'm not a big Beatles guy. He wasn't talking about it's just happenstance that like he's not <laughs> yeah. talking about the rail right there. It's yeah, it's just my
1: classic rock fanboyism kind of showing through here. Um, I've borrowed a lot of song titles for chapters within the book and, of course, the actual title itself. So, yeah, he, he was talking about a literal octopus. We're talking a meta, about a metaphorical one in the form of a railroad here.
0: Uh, well, how did the, ra- the orange industry and the railroad industry <clears throat> first become connected? So they really started
1: to cooperate with each other in building up Southern California's environmental and developed landscape in the 1870s. At that time, there was a big orange grower in the city of Los Angeles by the name of Joseph Joseph Wolfskill. His father, William Wolfskill, had been growing oranges in California since the 1840s, since it was uh, part of the Republic of Mexico, at least nominally. Uh, His son, Joseph, inherited what was, uh, at the time, the largest citrus grove in North America. Uh, And in 1877, after very closely cooperating with the Southern Pacific Railroad, which was a transcontinental route that went from California to Louisiana. He was able to convince the railroad executives to ship an entire car just of oranges that were grown in California. This was pretty expensive. Wolfskill spent about five hundred dollars to Ship just one car of oranges because the railroad had to make periodic stops at icing stations across the country to make sure that the fruit didn't perish in transit. Uh, but thankfully, over time, refrigerator cars kind of made it easier for oranges to go out of California to go to markets in the Midwest. Uh, they were particularly popular in Iowa. Eventually, citrus from the Golden State made its way to places like Boston, New York, to the eastern seaboard and started to displace products that were sold by Florida or that were developed in Italy, which was where california got a lot of, or excuse me, where Americans got a lot of their citrus before California really took off. So very shortly after this first shipment of oranges from California, the two big railroads that were in the Golden State In the late 19th century realized, oh, wow, there's a lot of money to be made in facilitating growth of this crops, shipping them and then making money off of it. In addition to the Southern Pacific Railroad, Californians also relied on the Santa Fe Railroad or Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad, which went from Kansas out to San Diego, San Bernardino and eventually Los Angeles. And uh, in competition with each other, the Southern Pacific and Santa Fe were constantly battling to lay new tracks into citrus country, to come up with scientific techniques, to build icing stations, to make sure that uh, oranges and lemons weren't uh, ruined in transit. They gave discounts to orange and lemon growers. They organized entire promotional fairs as far away as Chicago, Kentucky, New Orleans, where people across the United States could start to taste what they dubbed the fruits of paradise, the fruits of the American Eden. And so all these promotional efforts really made citrus and railroads really align in Americans' view of Southern California by the late 19th century.
0: So thinking of it it's almost like a chicken and an egg, it sounds like the citrus sort of already existed, but it was really like a local community crop, maybe sold within California, but not getting outside of it until the railroad comes in. Um, and that's when it starts, you know, sort of really taking off and making a lot, a lot of money.
1: Yeah, you're, yeah, it's absolutely right, Jake. Citrus was here first, but it was really just for within California consumption, it didn't take off until the railroad, which then convinced citrus growers to grow even more land, which meant that they were using the railroad more. It's like a snake eating its own tail, really, this sort of self-perpetuating cycle, or maybe a nuclear chain reaction would be a better metaphor, because it's something that sort of consistently grows over time. Um, Citrus um, really took off in California in the 1880s and 1890s and just continue to make fabulous profits until World War II and it's actually one of the only segments of the California economy that made it all the way through the Great Depression really without losing any momentum prices consistently went up through the 1930s even while the economy
0: was crashing so the chain reaction continued for decades after it first started what were the environmental impacts of the citrus industry <laughs> um and then it sounds like so we're, we're seeing a huge scale increase with the railroads but but how does that change sort of how the citrus uh, industry impacts the environment? That's a great question.
1: Uh, If we look through the history of California, going all the way back to pre-colonial times when indigenous people uh, lived off the land, we see that people have modified the landscape to really meet their needs, whether that's through controlled burning, uh, through the Spanish use of agriculture starting in the 18th century. What the citrus industry introduced here was scaling very much increasing the human impact the ecological footprint on the golden state farmers would have to remove native vegetation they would uh, periodically use dynamite if they had to break up a uh, hard pan or rocks in order to reach the soil that would be useful for growing their orange trees um, another helpful factor for the citrus growers anyway was that before oranges took off really as late as about the 1860s Southern California, where orange production was really centered, very much depended on the cattle industry. And so the cows that had thrived here for decades, ever since the Spanish introduced them, had eaten a lot of a lot of the native vegetations. Uh, That had a very dark side in that it disrupted Native American economies. It led to the collapse of indigenous societies, but it reduced the amount of plant life that was here by the time the citrus growers took over. So that allowed them to modify the landscape a little bit easier one of the interesting things that orange growers did was a process referred to as grafting so that they would plant orange trees in whatever town they wanted uh, big places like riverside pomona which really took off because of citrus and they would find a variety of orange or lemon that they liked get a twig or a branch off of that tree and then graft it onto trees of their own which if for various scientific and botanical reasons that I don't want to go too deeply into here. Basically, if you do that, you can change the type of orange or the variety that the fruit grows. There were a couple types of oranges that were really popular for grafting. The Washington Naval Orange that took off in Riverside in the 1870s. uh, The Valencia Orange, which really dominated a lot of Orange County. Um, So those were grafted and essentially growers made Clone trees, if you will, through this process of grafting that really dominated the landscape of Southern California, places like the San Gabriel San Bernardino Valley, the coastal plain uh, around Orange County, inland areas like uh, Riverside and Redlands, all had native trees sort of ripped out and replaced with orange trees instead. And the railroad was very much an equal participant in this process. Railroad businessmen knew that oranges were starting to make good money for Southern California in the 1880s and 1890s. And so they spread scientific pamphlets, studies. They cooperated with the University of California to publicize the best soil management or irrigation techniques. So they helped spread information for farmers about what kind of work they'd have to do if they wanted to start an orange grove. The Southern Pacific also advertised California sort of as a paradise, as these oranges, as sort of the forbidden apple, the California equivalent of the forbidden fruit from the Christian Bible. The Some of the podcast listeners might know that the Sunset Magazine, which is still with us today, originated as a railroad publication, mm-hmm. and Sunset Magazine periodically had stuff talking about how oranges are great for your health, and Southern Californians are becoming wealthy and living better, longer lives because of all the vitamin C and the sunshine that they're getting. So we have this sort of weird dual view of the landscape here, where on the one side, it's very much being controlled by humans. Its productive potential is being manipulated to meet the needs of what orange and lemon growers require. But on the other hand, advertisers say, oh no, no, it's all natural. California is just this sort of naturalistic paradise. We may have introduced these trees, but they're still you know, reaching their logical apex here, uh, Southern California, the final frontier of the United States. One last comment about the uh, industrial impact on the landscape here is that um, the the citrus industry was very much a mechanized enterprise. The agricultural techniques that they used, the electrified mechanical packing houses, which are like these factories where they prepared fruits for shipments, which are always located right on the railroad tracks, um, further showed that this is not a natural landscape. This is very much a human controlled industrial enterprise. And a lot of the machinery that citrus growers relied upon came from the railroads. Southern Pacific, Santa Fe, helped spread a lot of the industrial techniques that citrus growers relied upon.
0: Absolutely, and I, I'm glad we're finally touching on sort of the agricultural um, impacts of the railroad because I just think it's such an interesting sort of, I don't know if it's site is the right word, but but it's that mixing of, of industrialization and, and these rural areas and these agricultural areas. Where, you know, and we expect it today. We have um, you know all these highly processable uh, industrial machines that will pick up off, off a bunch of the. Um, uh, I think I think it's with oranges. Oranges can be picked off by machines, right? You really,
1: they that's very difficult to do. Um, oranges and lemons will bruise very easily, and um, that actually reminds me of a little side story that involves the railroad. <laughs> so I'll tell it now. Uh, back in the around the 1890s, early 1900s. A lot of oranges were becoming spoiled during transit. They were having this weird virus that was called blue mold appear on the skins. And at first, a lot of the orange and lemon growers said, oh, it's happening on the railroad cars. It's happening as oranges are being transported from point A to point B. Maybe it's the railroad's fault. It must be them for not taking good care of the product. Shame on them. Uh, But some scientific exploration revealed that typically it was actually the workers in the groves who would sometimes pick fruits, and if they did so carelessly, they might scratch or bruise the skin, which allowed the molds to get inside. So it wasn't actually the railroad's fault. And when they discovered the cause of this blue mold virus, the citrus industry, led by California's Sunkist, uh, started to publicize this, saying, oh my gosh, it's not the railroad's fault. Don't blame the Southern Pacific. Don't blame the Santa Fe lines. It's us. We need to get our workers to pick things by hand. So. There there have been advances in the citrus industry where you can pick uh, using machinery, but it's not like, uh, say, Midwestern harvesting of wheat where you can just get your combine harvester going and really thresh all day. Unfortunately, with oranges, it has to be done
0: by hand. Well, I'm surprised they took the, the blame for it. I feel like most of the time the company would be like, hey, okay, I guess it was us, but we're going to we're not going to let anyone know that. And we're going to kind of keep that inside baseball. So Exactly. Yeah, we'll we'll take the right off and we'll blame our partners in the other sphere. That, that seems like the capitalist playbook
1: 101 for the 20th century.
0: With the influx you talked about, people are now on the East Coast instead of having to get their uh, fruits, vegetables all shipped over all the way from Italy um, or from Florida. Now they're starting to see if, you know, if you're a New Yorker, you're starting to see a California orange um, in your grocery store. Um, how does that impact the perceptions of California? Um, you know, it's a golden state, so it's, you know, associated with the gold rush, but now they're having all this, you know, breadbasket stuff.
1: Your comparison to the gold rush, Jake, is a really apt one, because a lot of orange growers really compared what they were doing to the gold rush of the 1840s. They liked to brag that over the long run, the citrus industry bought a lot more wealth, brought a lot more money into California than even the gold rush had previously. Um, New Englanders in particular started to come to Southern California. People who were already a little bit rich uh, had enough capital to start their own orange plantations. It's really hard to grow oranges. It takes maybe five to seven years, depending on what type of orange you're growing, for it to actually bear fruit. So you have to have enough money to survive uh, in the meantime before that happens. So because California was... Sort of this settlement area for New Englanders who had a little bit of money, who were maybe coming to the Golden State to improve their health, to get all the sunshine and breathe cleaner air. People started to refer to places like Redlands or Riverside as the quote unquote playground of the immensely rich, meaning if you you have to pay to play in California's citrus industry. But citrus also really created a distinct cultural identity for Southern California. If you look back at the Golden State during the gold rush, places like San Francisco, Sacramento, and the Central Valley, they were the big winners there because that's where people transported themselves into the Golden State before the railroad came. That's where they spent and discovered their gold. Sutter's Mill, out in the American River, right? Where Sacramento is today. That's where the gold rush got started. And there was a perception that a lot of Americans had that Southern California was just cow country or made up of cow counties because the cattle industry was dominant here for decades. Uh, this And that's true. for uh, Up through the Spanish and the Mexican eras, uh, really Southern California was dominated by a pastoral economy. And it was the success of the citrus industry that really transformed this idea that Southern California truly is part of the golden state. People like to refer to the oranges uh, borrowing from Greek, Greek legend as golden apples or the apples of Hesperides, which is uh, something that the historian Douglas Sackman writes about in his fantastic book, Orange Empire. Um, but basically, people conflated oranges with gold, with wealth in Southern California, saying, hey, we're finally here. The Southland is finally modernizing, just like the rest of the state. And they used that money to build enormous towns for themselves to build impressive structures like, say, the Mission Inn in Riverside or large churches, things like that. So California... Or Southern California, in particular, really got to participate in that label of gold rush of Golden State because of the so-called Golden Apple that really made the economy take off.
0: Okay, and, and thinking about you know if, if you're somebody that's from Southern California before the citrus industry starts booming, um, as you mentioned, you're probably not going to be able to participate in this. Um, you're probably if you're a farmer, you're, you're you probably don't have five to seven years. Um, of being unprofitable, that you can kind of just um, uh, you know eat those those losses. Um did anyone talk? like was anyone frustrated with all these people from New England that already had a bunch of money kind of coming in and taking um, taking over, or are people pretty amicable to it?
1: Well, that's there's really two answers to that question. The first answer is that Southern California was not very heavily populated before the railroad came to town in the 1870s and 1880s. So there weren't a whole lot of American English-speaking people who were here to be upset when the New Englanders arrived. But the people who were upset, and this is the second answer I can give, were the people who were already here, the indigenous Californians and people of Spanish-speaking backgrounds, of Spanish families, who would refer to themselves as Californios. A lot of these people lost their land to squatters, to uh, settlers who took advantage of the fact that the United States really took California through war from Mexico in the 1840s. And so unfortunately, a lot of these people, indigenous groups who had already been dispossessed by the missions, uh, continued to suffer to lose money, lands, wealth they really didn't participate in the citrus industry on a, a large level. So a lot of them were not terribly thrilled when these people that they would consider foreign settlers from the far Eastern United States, Yankees, as they would be uh, referred to in Spanish, using the term Yankee, of course, um, didn't
0: receive a lot of love from the Californios or from the indigenous peoples. Um, so so that kind of speaks to how this industry, um, you know, helped some folks and hurt other folks. Um, Along those same lines, how did the Railroad and Citrus advertisements help shape perceptions of racial groups and or immigrants?
1: <clears throat> they, the, the way that they used advertisements would not pass muster today. It would meet from actually a, with a lot of public scrutiny. I've gone through a lot of railroad publications or the California Citrus newspapers that use very demeaning language to refer to people of color, whether they're Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Asian Americans or indigenous peoples. A lot of times they're referred to as uh, peons. Racial epithets were employed very regularly. Whenever workers would try to organize into unions to try to get a little bit of bargaining power for themselves or to win uh, greater wages, railroad owners would uh, plant very anti union newspaper articles saying, oh, these are all undertaken by Mexican workers who are trying to subvert the capitalist order that we have brought to Southern California. Uh, anti-Chinese rhetoric, uh, really anti-Chinese imagery, saturated California, going all the way back to the gold rush era. And th- the citrus industry and railroads participated in that, spreading really harmful information about how they're really only good for menial labor. They're not capable of critical thinking. They're you know confined to these opium dens, as we've seen in places like San Francisco or LA's Chinatowns. It's very common for lynch mobs to form against uh, Mexican-Americans, against Chinese-Americans, In places like Los Angeles, Uh, indigenous people also suffered. They had their images, their cultures were sort of co opted by the railroad. They were turned into advertisements. Um, The Santa Fe, for instance, uh, oh, this is a little bit outside of California, had what were referred to as Indian detours, where it would take people to the Hopi or in Pueblo reservations of places like Arizona and New Mexico. And the fact that you have to go on a a detour, that you have to go off the main line to see Native Americans, as if to say you have to go far out of your way. They're not part of our story. They're not part of the settled America that we know that's a modern country. They're far out of the way. So, unfortunately, uh, there were a lot of really harmful views of indigenous people that persisted well into the 20th century. Yeah. I, I do have to say, though, that despite a lot of the hardships, a lot of the What we would call prejudice that people of color faced, many of them made the best of the circumstances that they could. They were able to build up wealth for themselves to create communities, whether that's places like the citrus colonias where Mexican Americans lived, the Chinatowns that we see in some of the larger citrus cities like Riverside, which was uh, built right very close to the railroad tracks. Um, So to dismiss Members of minorities as just victims would be to overlook the fact that they were able to build up their wealth to break into the middle or even the upper classes. Sometimes um, there were orange plantation owners of Chinese descent, Japanese descent, of Mexican descent. So the story is a little bit more complicated than, you know, big companies taking advantage of disenfranchised people of color.
0: Absolutely. And, and so you mentioned that um, some folks were able to eventually become plantation owners. Um, what, what other positions, um, that, so, so essentially how are they building up wealth using, um, the citrus industry? So there's a couple ways that one could do that. Uh, Thankfully, there were some opportunities for women
1: to work in the citrus industry. And in particular, they worked in packing houses. And it would be very common for uh, Latinas, for Mexican-American women to work in packing houses, married to men who are out doing field work in the groves and processing the oranges that their uh, fathers, husbands, brothers are picking. And so by building enough wealth, by having everyone in the family do a little bit of work for citrus, they were, of course, able to build better livelihoods for themselves, to have slightly better homes, to fund education for their children so that they could have um, better job opportunities themselves later on. The Chinese American workers, who, as most podcast listeners will know, were instrumental in building the railroads, um, would be really expert in building up labor gangs that they would then sell to either railroad companies or farmers, like citrus owners, up and down the state. Um, And these middlemen or compradores would be able to uh, make a little bit more money as foremen over, like hiring out their countrymen to the different industries that are available here. And so with that money, they could invest in Chinatowns. They could invest in community improvement efforts. Above just about any other immigrant group in California, the Chinese were very good about taking care of their countrymen who came into California, uh, whether that was in San Francisco during the gold rush or places like Los Angeles after it eventually became the biggest port in the United States. Um, So those are some of the instances of hard work that we would see these communities uh, do in order to
0: improve their livelihoods and join the middle class. It's a good point. Like in the packing facilities where it's, it's not, not everybody that works in this industry either works for a railroad or works like outside in the orange fields, like with any industry, there's going to be so many different phases of, you know, to get the oranges to, in this case, to, um, to point B and then point C and, and so forth. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and always, you know, in any town, you're going to need stuff like uh, cooks, launderers, uh, domestic laborers to work in the mansions of some of these wealthier folks. And those positions were almost invariably filled by people of Mexican or Chinese descent. Um, so, you know, even if they're not directly benefiting from citrus or railroads, they're still taking part in and helping to create the communities that wouldn't have existed without those economic factors.
0: Obviously, today, um, we have things like the highway system, the interstate system to um, to move a lot of our products, um, though freight still has a pretty big impact on our supply chains. Um, but how does sort of this new like vehicle uh, transportation, how does that impact our orange trains?
1: Well, to be very blunt, the coming of the interstate highway system and of automobiles in California really displaced a lot of the railroad systems that were already here, and were kind of responsible for the downfall of the octopus's garden. Of all the states in America, California was one of the first early adopters of the automobile. In 1910, when Hiram Johnson ran for governor on an anti-railroad platform, saying that he wanted to bring the Southern Pacific under control to make it start uh, paying its fair share of taxes and to kick it out of politics, He included automobiles in his advertisements. He went around Southern California on a car to say, we can use this to break our dependence on the railroad. And for him, that was really symbolic. But over the next few decades, by the 20s and especially by the 1930s, automobiles succeeded just on an immense scale. Uh, We see the development of uh, paved roads across many of the citrus towns of Southern California, asphalt pavement. Route 66, the so-called Mother Road. Brought a lot of migrants from places like the Midwest, particularly Oklahoma and Arkansas, into Southern California to pick oranges during the Great Depression. In the 1930s, the Southern California Auto Club initiated a traffic survey that resulted in the creation of the Seco Parkway, which is like the first modern freeway in Southern California. And so with the freedom that automobiles brought, not having to follow predetermined tracks, being able to drive wherever you want, uh, that really made automobiles a much more accessible alternative, especially as new uh, manufacturing techniques made them more affordable to everyday Americans so that you don't have to put a second mortgage on your house in order to get an automobile. Um, That really translated to freedom and kind of, I don't want to say killed the railroads because they're still with us. They still transport people and goods, but really diminished their impact on the economy, on culture and on politics. Interestingly enough, as the transportation historian, Carlos Arnoldo Fuentes has pointed out, many of the new roads that were put into places like California ran parallel to the train tracks, uh, which in turn had run parallel to the Mexican or indigenous footpaths that were already here. So we see sort of a continuity among whether native peoples, Californios and Americans, in terms of what transportation routes that they're using. Um, but really the highway system in california boomed after world war ii as people started to come here to take part in manufacturing a lot of orange groves were ripped out or replaced by houses which meant more people had cars which means they needed more roads to get to their schools their jobs their leisure sites and so by the 1950s 1960s the interurban railways like the Pacific Electric, uh, even some of the routes of the Santa Fe and Southern Pacific had been uh, removed to make way for what was a more commercially viable alternative. Uh, some people like to think of this as sort of a conspiracy theory that the oil and rubber industries partnered to take down interurban streetcar transit in places like LA. I'm not sure if I buy that. I think it's really just new technology displacing old technology. I don't think there were necessarily any sinister intentions there. It's just, unfortunately, the fact that transportation is not cyclical. Um, It's going to be replaced by something better all the time. So that really explains why the railroad kind of fell by the wayside by the
0: mid 20th century. Um, Out of curiosity, so you mentioned a researcher that focused um, on transportation paths and found a continuity between indigenous footpaths, um, the railroad and the interstate um, highway system. Did he figure out why that is? Is it Essentially, there are certain locations that are better for cities and highly populated areas, and it's more likely that they're going to kind of all converge on the quickest path from point A to point B, or is there something else kind of there?
1: Well, some of it is is common sense, for instance, Native Americans knowing where the best breaks in some of our mountain chains are, Um, for instance, in Southern California, knowing that the Cajon Pass between the San Gabriel and the San Bernardino Mountains is good for a footpath, which later became uh, home to the Santa Fe Railroad. Um, A lot of it is sort of dependent on geography, on the courses of mountains, and the courses of rivers, if Southern California had significant rivers to speak of, we really don't have much water here. Uh, But it's but basically transportation is determined by geography in places like Southern California. You have to kind of stick closer to the coasts in order to avoid the deserts or the mountains of the inlands. The Native Americans knew that, which is why they made the really effective system of footpaths that they did. The Spanish just copied that. Uh, Later, American railroad surveyors were sent out by Congress, copied that, copied what the Spanish did. Um, So. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Native Americans knew what they were doing, so why not just follow the footpaths that had served them well for centuries before Europeans or
0: Americans came? For sure. So that was a conscious choice. They were knowingly using that same path as they were doing it. Yes, they were knowingly doing it without really giving credit. Yeah. Uh, Great. Well, what do you think the, the sort of legacy of the railroad in the citrus industry is?
1: Well, we talked a little bit already about memory, about the idea that Southern California sort of becomes conflated with railroads, with oranges, that those are indispensable parts of our public memory. And if you go to um, any mid to large size city in Southern California today in on public buildings, maybe inside um, grocery stores. Inside even a Trader Joe's that I went to recently, you'll see murals of the citrus industry or a train pulled up to the siding of a packing house and loading up oranges and lemons. Um, So I think it's it's fair to say that uh, public memory and the fact that we just can't let go of this octopus's garden is really the biggest impact that we have today. Um, To be fair, to give credit where it's due, again, people of color also took advantage of working on the railroad or working in the orange groves to build up wealth for themselves, uh, which is something that allowed their communities to thrive economically, to increase in number. If you look at places like the San Gabriel Valley today, uh, the Asian American population is booming and has been growing steadily since the days of citrus. As we know, California is a minority-majority state, meaning that Latinos are the dominant strained population here. They account for more than 50%. And to this day, Latinos, Mexican, Mexican-American migrant laborers are the ones who are responsible for the citrus industry uh, thriving. Not in Southern California. We don't really grow oranges anymore, but up in places like the Central Valley. Um, so yeah, the, the railroads and citrus really just sort of occupy a space in the mythology of California that allows them to stand alongside Hollywood or aviation, the missions or the gold rush as being just those indelibly Californian parts
0: of our legacy.
1: All
0: right, well we're gonna put a link to to that book. You said it comes out on the July 10th, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Just a few weeks away. Awesome. Uh, well, congratulations. I'm sure finishing the book was. Uh, well, I'm sure you finished it a while ago, but but I'm sure it's just such a sense of release that that big project's done, um, and now it's going to come to um, to fruition pretty soon. Are you working on anything anything else?
1: Yeah, I've got a few other research projects going right now. Ironically, I just wrote a piece um, about the history of automobile restoration in Southern California. So here I am uh, saying automobiles aren't as cool as trains, and then I'm doing that history. Uh, I'm also looking a little bit about online communities and how people are using new media like memes, online images to sort of understand the past. Um, But the railroad will always be in my heart. I've got a few other ideas for railroad history that I might pursue in the future. But it was a real pleasure to talk with you today. And I appreciate you giving me this forum to share some of my research.
0: Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.